0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, I bring back Ryan Reeves to talk about the recent Airbnb and DoorDash IPOs, as well as do a deep dive into one of 2020's hottest stocks, Square, ticker SQ. Ryan has been investing since the age of 12 and is now founder and CEO of Investing City, an independent equity research platform. For those of you who have been listening to the show but haven't done so yet, don't forget to pay the fee. For many of you who have already paid the fee, thank you so much and please continue to do so. It's a fee that should be paid with every episode you like, not just a one and done thing. I know a lot of you have done this because many, many, many of you have reached out to me on Instagram and told me that you have. And in December, we had one of our best months ever for this show. So I know many of you are doing it and I really, really appreciate it. Like I've said in the past, we don't run ads to promote the show or grow the show. It's just all organic and it's just growth that's driven by word of mouth from you guys, all of the listeners. And for those of you who are new to the show and you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about when I say the fee, the fee is a simple thing that I ask of all the listeners, and it's a concept that I got from one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Andy Frisella. It's not a monetary fee. You don't have to break out your wallet or credit card, you don't have to pay anything to listen to the show. All the episodes are completely free. All you have to do to pay the fee is tell one person about each episode you like. If it's an episode that makes you think deeper or differently, it makes you laugh or challenges you, I just ask that you share it with a friend. That's all the fee is. As always, thank you all so much for the support. Thank you to those of you who reach out to me on social media. I love chatting with you guys. And Welcome to those of you who are new to the show. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Ryan Reeves.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I bring back Ryan Reeves. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. For those who didn't hear our last episode together on episode 55, tell us a bit about yourself and your story.
2: I've kind of just been a business nerd from a really Kind of a really early age, so bought my first stock when I was 12 years old, and really since then, for some reason, I just everything about it—the constant learning, just being able to observe the world around you, and actually be able to profit from that, and in, you know, learning from inspiring leaders—I think there's so many aspects to business that also translate to life as well. So I, I knew I wanted to do something in, in the business slash investment world, and had a few positions in investing and really just wanted to take a leap out on my own, actually. So about three years ago, I started an investment newsletter called Investing City and been doing that ever since and just feel like it's a, it's a total privilege to be able to analyze businesses all day.
1: I personally love analyzing stocks too, and I love reading annual reports and things of that nature. But I've actually started to split my portfolio quite a bit between individual stock picks and ETFs. And partially because of guests that I've had on the show, but partially academics and finance tend to look down on stock pickers and show us research, concluding that we're only as good as monkeys throwing darts at a at the Wall Street Journal stock section. So do you think that you and other investors can analyze stocks for above market returns, and if so, how is that possible?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I sure hope so, or else nobody should subscribe to my stuff. Um, I, I think there is a, a weird thing because. Like Anytime somebody outperforms over a long time, people will just say, oh, that's, that's the outlier. That's luck. Um, and I guess to a certain extent, it, it is very difficult because there is a very fine line between skill and, and luck in this game. It is very difficult to discern what is really like skill. And I think a lot of it comes back to thought process and like the clarity of thought. So that's what I try to do with my subscribers is really just lay out, this is how I'm thinking about things. You can look at things a different way, but hopefully over the very long term, it'll bear out. We do better than the market. And I think there's also like really structural things. So, you know, a big hedge fund has a lot of things to worry about. I mean, if you make decisions by a committee, you have to make decisions very methodically, which can, like, on average, it probably lowers the times that you're very wrong, but sometimes you can't move as nimbly. There's a bunch of structural reasons why I think, you know, like the retail everyday investor can do well. Like they don't need to explain anything to anybody. You can change your mind based on seeing something in a totally different way and you don't, it doesn't really matter if you look stupid. And you know, there's just different sectors that people can research without, you know, maybe looking crazy or you can invest in these very unprofitable companies that are sort of getting more profitable. So I'm basically just saying all this to say that there, there are some structural reasons why you'll see those stats. 85% of hedge fund managers won't beat the market. I guess the other thing is a lot of hedge funds are just trying to like minimize volatility and drawdowns, which retail investors, again, don't really have to worry about. So th- there's a lot in there, but I'd say that there there's a lot of reasons why it is possible to beat the market, but I, you should always kind of keep track. I mean, I, that's one thing I really believe in is that you should keep score. If you're not keeping score, um, you can be fooling yourself. You can think you're doing better than the market, but then you actually look at your after tax returns and it's like, <laughs> you know, I might as well. Just stop wasting all this time researching 10Ks on the weekend and you know, just buy p five hundred. So I think it's important to keep score and then if you're if you look on paper and you're like, wow, I'm I'm really not beating the market, then you know, maybe it's time to go back to the drawing board. But so far, so good, I guess. It's a really interesting question, but I, I do believe that you can beat the market as as maybe controversial as that is these days.
1: What do you use to track your progress? I have had a hard time personally finding something that tracks my returns well.
2: Yeah, totally. i I guess I'm pretty old fashioned. Just I actually use Google Sheets, and I, I think that's maybe even more controversial. Like people really hate on it. Um, but I, it's not like I'm doing any crazy V lookup. You know, all this stuff. I, I just have my portfolio on a, a simple Google Sheet, and how many shares and the you can pull in the share price. They just do like equals. Google finance, and then you can pull in the share price. Um, So, you know, it it automatically updates and then just at the very end of every month, you know, right. When trading closes, I look at the dollar amount and I, I paste it. So, you know, what, what the dollar amount was when the first day of the month and then the last day of the month, and then you can kind of just calculate the the month over month. And then you keep a, a running tally of the year to date. And I just do that for every month and every year. Um, And then compare that to the S and P. You can pull in all of that data, but I just do it very manually. Uh, I don't even use like a portfolio tracker or something like that.
1: I don't think there really is a great portfolio tracker, to be honest with you. I've done a lot of research and I've looked for a lot of software tools to do this because I want like a tool that can track my trades. Like if I say I own Square, which we're going to talk about later in this episode, I've bought Square at say five different times, so I have five different cost bases. And I want to be able to see like what are the different returns on that, and there hasn't been a good tool that's been able to do that across all of my portfolios. And even doing that in a Google Sheet's been hard for me. So I think maybe I should take your approach and just look at the dollar amounts at the beginning and the end, and that's you know that's the net gain that you had for the month.
2: It's so true that it's I you know I haven't really found anything either. I mean, even just like capital gain stuff, like you said, you have maybe five different lots. So every time I make a trade. I will put in, you know, this is how many shares and this is exact price. So just very manually, and then I can look back and say, hey, if I'm if I'm really wanting to sell the stock, you know, what are the different lots? So it is like a very manual process, but then I also feel like I know the portfolio more intimately versus if the portfolio tracker was just doing all this behind the scenes, I think sometimes I might lose something. And maybe that's like a old fashioned kind of approach, but I also, in like that Google Sheet, also do like a little rationale for you know, why I made each decision. So it's nice to have everything right there.
1: I don't trade much anyway, so I don't really have an excuse for needing a software that can do it. I, can, I should do it manually like you do, because I don't think I've made a trade since like March 25th. I think that was probably the last time. So it's been almost, almost nine months. So there's no, it's not like it's a lot of manual labor for me.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a good uh, date to make a trade. Hopefully that was a buy. <laughs>
1: I bought a ton and I was actually sitting in like 80% cash up until March. And then I, I used all the cash and, and invested it all in, in March and got some really good cost basis, thankfully. So 2020 has been a good year for my portfolio.
2: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: How would you classify yourself as an investor? Are you a value investor, growth focused, maybe something else, maybe a combination of the two?
2: I think labels can be tricky because I tried really hard not to... I don't know. Put myself in a box sounds cliche, but I think as soon as you identify with something, it becomes hard to evolve if you need to. If that makes sense. So, I I mean, I've seen. I don't want to hate on value investing, but I think value investing. All right, Warren Buffett. All investing at its core is value investing. But you know, it's very easy to be like an us versus them. Like, oh, I'm a growth investor. I'll look at all these value investors trying to buy. 10 times PE stocks or whatever. But I think that that thinking is really surface level versus trying to like dig deep and understand, you know, what are the drivers of these things? I think as soon as you put a label, then a lot of that thinking kind of goes to the wayside. And so I'm very intentional about saying, like, not saying, oh, we're growth investing, even though I'd say that a lot of people would categorize the style as that. But if, you know, like growth stocks from here with no earnings, you know, increases like 2x, it might not be prudent to like have your money in a lot of these companies. So if I was, if I had all of my identity as I'm a growth investor, it'd be very difficult to kind of evolve if that's what the market was offering. So, you know, as Buffett also says, growth is just a component of value. Um, so really, you're just trying to buy something for less than it's going to be worth in the future. And there's definitely a lot of different ways to, to go about that. But I naturally am very interested in these cutting edge companies that you know, are growing fast, disrupting different markets, amazing founder-led leadership, and that naturally tends to be more growthy stuff, I guess.
1: When it comes to new investors who are just approaching the stock market for the first time, what is the best strategy for them? Should they try to pick individual stocks or focus on diversified
2: ETFs? I think it comes back to what's your interest level, actually. I mean, if you don't care at all about the stock market, which you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast, or, or if you don't care about any of this stuff, you might as well just take all of that time that you're going to be spending researching and allocate that towards things that you're actually going to be interested in. I mean, at the end of the day, life isn't all about money. And if you have to spend all your waking moments trying to beat the S&P 500 and you hate it, then it, you know, it's probably not worth it for you. So I'd say that that's like the biggest thing. What's your curiosity level around this? And then if it's really high, I would say jump in. Start, try to start learning about these things. I'd say that the investment, if you really like it, the investment in time can be, can be very worth it. If you can beat the S&P for, by just little amounts for a very long time, it's pretty powerful.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys,
2: about a year and a half
0: ago, my wife and I got married, and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions it's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com M-I for an extended 30-day free trial.
3: Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com/slash/flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this: it's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. For anyone who is looking
1: for consistently fascinating information about companies, you are a great follow on Twitter. I want to talk about a few companies you've talked about on Twitter and others that have just been popular lately. Before we get into those specific companies, how do you come up with all the ideas you have for stock investments? Are you using stock screeners? Are you reading news articles, Wall Street Journal, things like that? How are stocks coming on your radar?
2: You know it's pretty all over the place. I would say that a good idea can come from just about anywhere. I mean Twitter is a great source. You might find different newsletters. So, I mean there's so many off the top of my head, but I'm um, just if you find me on Twitter, you can even go through the people that I follow and you can find some some great people on there. You know, I used to do a lot more screening. I think that it can be pretty valuable. I found it to be valuable in like m- the smaller cap names for some reason. I think like when you get really large cap, like I've looked at a, a lot of those, not definitely not everyone, but I mean, just from different friends in the industry over time, I mean, there's honestly so many. You can set up Google Alerts, like I have the. Google alert for IPO. So anytime there's IPO, you know, I'll try to get the prospectus, try to read through it. I mean, honestly, the longer that you're sort of in this, maybe different stock forums online, there's so, there's so many different places. Newsletters, I'd say like good ideas. There's a, this is definitely not a shortage. It's almost like the time to kind of ferret out what's quality and what's not.
1: When you discover investment ideas online whether it's through a resource like Seeking Alpha or like Twitter like you mentioned how do you detach yourself from the bias that most investors have after reading someone else's idea
2: You know it's funny I was talking to somebody the other week and they were, they were saying what are, you know what are the sources of things you subscribe to and all these data sources and to find different ideas and I was I was really like the the main thing that I do to understand if an investment is worthy of my dollars is go straight to the source material. So like the most important website for data is really the company's investor relations page. So if you just type in the company and then re- investor relations after it, and, and there's so much information on there, the SEC filings, they might have the transcripts on there, the quarterly earnings calls, you can listen to the recordings of those. Um, the 10K. I mean, there's so much on there that if you just go straight to the source material, you get a very unbiased opinion. I mean, maybe the company will have some slant in how how they present the information. Maybe you can find the investor presentation on there. But then if you actually just find the source material, you can make your own judgments. So I try really hard to go straight to that. And then if I'm not sure about something, maybe I can find somebody else's opinion but I think it's very important to develop your own conviction rather than latching on to somebody else's and then not actually doing that deep original research on your own. It's definitely a shortcut to just take somebody else's thinking and it could be helpful. But one thing that I, that I like to say is you really can't borrow conviction because you know if the stock falls out from you, you're not going to have that person that you read about their thesis. That's not yours actually and it's much difficult, way more difficult to kind of keep conviction if you don't do that original work.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit more. Why is it a bad idea to follow other investors blindly? You just mentioned conviction, but like, what about super investors like Warren Buffett? Why can't we just buy what Warren's buying, right? He has to publicly disclose it. Why can't we just buy what he buys?
2: I mean, it's worked for some people like Monish Pabrai. He really talks about like this concept of cloning investors' portfolios. And maybe that works for people, but for me, if I don't know exactly why I'm holding a stock or the basis of why I'm doing it, I get way more nervous when the stock sells off. And I mean it's it's more of just like a peace of mind thing for me. And I I think if you if you know exactly why you're holding a company and you can see the you know the results quarter after quarter building to, to something really special. Then when it sells off, you're going to have the nerve to you know plow more money in at really good times. So you know it's really if you just clone Buffett and you know he's not going to update his 13F until every quarter. So if you can sit through that and you don't really care, then hey maybe maybe it works for you. But I think that barring conviction can be very difficult to sit tight when when things get hairy.
1: I want to dive into one of the specific companies you've talked about quite a bit on Twitter. And for full disclosure, I am long this company. It is my largest individual position in my portfolio, and it has been for quite some time. That company is Square, which is ticker SQ. I'd like to do a deep dive into this company for the listeners, both so they can learn about this company, but more importantly, so they can see how you analyze and research companies. First, tell us a bit about Square. What does the company do and how do they make money?
2: Yeah. So I, I love that that's the first question because that's pretty much the, the first place that I start understanding the business model and and really peeling back the layers and understanding exactly how they make money. I mean, if you look at Amazon, the, the real profit center is AWS, which a lot of people know Amazon just for e-commerce. But if you peel back the layers, you understand that you know there's something different going on. And I think that's, that's similar with Square actually. So there's, there's two ecosystems or two sides of the business. And they really started out with the seller ecosystem, but they've really built up the cash app business. So you have the seller ecosystem and cash app. You can kind of think of it and the seller ecosystem. You know, if you've ever been to the farmer's market or a small business and you see the, that classic white, you know, square and you know, you can plug it into your phone, swipe it for credit card payments. Squares uh you can get into the the detail, but basically they are a payment processor for those merchants. And they take roughly 2.75%, and that's that's sort of their profit um, on each transaction. And then the Cash App side of the business. So Cash App started officially in 2013, but they really you know, only started making serious revenue in 2015 or 2016, and it's been growing very quickly since then. So you might know it as just uh, an app that you can download, you can buy stocks, you can buy Bitcoin, you can transfer money. So right now, actually, about 50% of the revenue comes from the seller ecosystem and 50% of revenue comes from Cash App. And uh, the kind of one of the bigger storylines is that Bitcoin revenues as a percentage of Cash App have really skyrocketed. So on a gross profit basis, um, seller ecosystem is more it's like a a good amount more than fifty percent right now. But Cash App is growing very quickly and uh, is definitely catching up. So that's that's sort of the big story. that Cash App is becoming an increasingly bigger part of Square's overall business. How does Cash App compare to
1: Venmo? And the reason I ask that is because anytime I have friends or family that want to send me money, they say, "Hey, I'm going to Venmo you." Or what's your Venmo? Like I said, I'm a big investor in Square. I'm very long Square, but I've never had somebody say, hey, what's your Cash App? Or I'm going to Cash App you, right? Everybody always says Venmo. And Venmo is owned by PayPal, for those who don't know. That's my second largest position, or it's up there is PayPal. But how do these two compare? How does Venmo and Square compare with Venmo and Cash App?
2: I've had a very similar experience where I've just haven't noticed as much adoption with Cash App, but it is actually a very different demographic actually. So Cash App has kind of typically targeted underbanked individuals. And even if you look on Google Trends, like in the geography of the United States, on the West Coast and East Coast, Venmo kind of rules, but Cash App is way more popular in like the, the Southern United States. And and more rural areas, which is really interesting. But yeah, you know that might be one of the reasons for that kind of discrepancy. But last quarter, Square reported that Cash App has 30 million monthly active users, which is very impressive. Venmo does have more, but Cash App is actually growing faster. And Bitcoin is is an interesting piece of it. So Bitcoin revenues year over year grew something like a thousand percent. So what's really interesting is that Cash app is using Bitcoin as sort of an on-ramp. So people can, you know, buy and sell Bitcoin very easily. And then they can kind of cross-sell them different services, whether it be the cash card, which is almost like a debit card or instant deposit. You can get your money on a peer-to-peer transfer immediately if you pay, you know, like 1% of the value. So there's different things that Cash App is doing, but they're they're very innovative. I mean, Venmo right now, the core use case is just peer to peer payments. As I've already alluded to, Cash App has brokerage services and they're kind of creating this closed loop payment system, which is really interesting. And I'm sure I'll get into it. But if you can imagine a transaction at a square seller, so let's say a retailer uses square for its payment processing. And that retailer will also maybe they also have employees that they need to pay. So what if they could just peer-to-peer pay them with the Cash App? And then they can kind of cut out all of the middlemen rather than you know having to pay ACH fees and, and all of all of these things. It can kind of create this closed loop ecosystem where Square can kind of cut out a lot of these payment middlemen. So I think that that is like the grand vision of Square. And Cash App is in, integral. To that
1: vision. How is Square making money off of Bitcoin via Cash App? How are they actually making revenue?
2: Yeah, so what's interesting is they are making lots of revenue, but very little in profit, just the way that the accounting works. So technically, Square acts as the principal for the transaction in Bitcoin. So if I don't know what Bitcoin, let's say it's just 20,000, right? So if I buy a Bitcoin for twenty thousand dollars. Square will actually recognize twenty thousand dollars in revenue. But the way that the actual transaction works, they make very little gross profit. So the gross margins on these transactions are like one to two percent. Basically, like the bid ask spread is the difference, and is their gross profit. Uh, so you know, very little operating profit from these huge, this huge growth in revenue. But as I said. The Bitcoin, you can kind of think of it as this engagement on ramp. So it's like a a nice place for people to start using the Cash App. And then, you know, they might use it to buy stocks or they might use it actually like their bank account, which is really valuable. So Bitcoin, while it's not really making much in profit, you can think of it as uh, really important for engagement.
1: With the way that they're recognizing revenue off of that Bitcoin, do you think that could be artificially inflating their revenue?
2: That's kind of the point I've made on Twitter: is that uh, you know you see like the top line squares growing sixty percent, but if you back out all of the Bitcoin growth, the the revenue is really you know not that impressive. One thing I'll say as like the counterpoint, which I think is important, is if you take out Bitcoin, Cash App is actually growing very quickly. So the last three quarters, it's accelerated. I, I think. Off the top of my head, it's something like three quarters ago, it was about 100% growth, then 130% growth, and last quarter was like 174% growth. And that's x bitcoin so removing Bitcoin. So Cash App in its own right is still growing very nicely. So I think the, the key metric to get, sort of look at is Square's overall gross profit rather than the top line, and, and just look how fast that's growing because Bitcoin can, as you mentioned, can kind of distort that. How did Square even make it on your radar in the first place? I think the first time I ever really noticed it was I started seeing it pop up at all these really small businesses and just seeing them use this you know, tiny thing that they can plug in their iPhone and all of a sudden they can start taking credit cards. And I don't know, this might have been like eight years ago, even before it IPO'd. And then I think it IPO'd in 2015. And so I took a more serious look and I was pretty impressed. I mean, it's growing very fast, you had very small penetration into all these small businesses. And, but I think it was just, you know, like a classic Peter Lynch trying to observe and, and uh, recognize things, I guess.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it
0: comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms
3: apply. All right, back to the show.
1: And for those who don't know, what he means by Peter Lynch is Peter Lynch wrote a book called One Up on Wall Street, where he talks about how individual investors have an up on professional investors because they're able to get investment ideas from things they see in their everyday lives. And that's, that's what Ryan was saying there is he saw it small businesses. He saw the square little square reader at all these different merchants, and he was able to recognize that and then start looking into the company. And a lot of investors have been able to do that. So that's that Peter Lynch style of, of research that he's, he's mentioning there. Once you noticed that, and it was on your radar, you mentioned that one of the first things you dove into was learning about their business model, understanding how they made money. From there, what did you dive into? And what did you use to understand those things? Did you look at the annual reports? Did you go to the financial statements? Maybe something else?
2: The first place I, I try to start is simply the, the annual report, also known as the 10K and- and really understand, you know, exactly what the revenue segments are. And what's interesting is, you know, right after it IPO'd, the subscription part of the business, pretty much known as Cash App, was very small in terms of revenue. I think it was under 10%. So it was really this payment processing company. And so once I I like understood that, that's the big piece to focus on. And so I I really tried to like dive into the the payment processing industry and it's incredibly complex, actually. Just how a payment happens is is very interesting. But you can think of Square as like a payment facilitator. So basically, they take like a bunch of sub accounts, which are the merchants. So typically, like before Square and before Stripe, a lot of companies they would go to their bank branch and say, "Hey, we need a, a business banking account to accept payments," and then the the bank would have partners with the, you know, these big terminals where you could swipe your credit card and that would be another fee. And it would be like this huge paperwork ordeal in order to just get a business bank account and get up and, and start taking credit card payments. But Square basically did all of that for you and then made the onboarding process very simple. So they kind of aggregated all of these different merchants. And then the bottleneck was this very lengthy process of actually getting up and running and Square did that for you. And for that, for that convenience, they charge a little bit of a higher rate. So for small businesses, you know, like 2.75%, um, that's a bit higher than maybe for like a high volume retailer, they might be doing, I don't know, like 1.5%. So it definitely makes a difference, but it's just like, it takes a lot of the headache out. So I tried to really understand what was going on, like how much of that revenue, that 2.75% was Square taking and and just trying to dive into the payment industry, because I think, I think that's important because then you can have a good sense of what's happening and how early days on and opportunity it is. So that's, that's the next thing I tried to do. And then you know, just looking at the financials, trying to understand, is growth accelerating, decelerating? And I was noticing that subscription revenue, though it is very small, is growing incredibly fast. Um, so that's just something that I just kept in my mind. Yeah. And then, you know, looking at competition, you know, versus like the legacy players, there's a lot of things that you kind of do for the research process, but it it all gets around am I paying less for what I think this business could be worth in the very long term? You know, everything is just centered around that and understanding, you know, is somebody going to come in and undercut Square? Is that possible? Just trying to like do research. If you have a question, try to figure out the answer, talk to smart people. Really, just it's almost like an investigative journalism thing, just trying to find out different answers to questions that you pose yourself.
1: What are Square's KPIs or key metrics that you look for when you're analyzing their results?
2: I think two things that I look for these days, especially as Cash App has become a bigger part, is the Cash App growth taking out Bitcoin. So, X Bitcoin, how fast is Cash App growing? And then Kind of off of that is just gross profit. So the gross margins are, are going down because cash app is becoming a bigger piece of the business. And then since Bitcoin is very low gross margin and it's making up a higher percentage of revenue, it's making the overall gross margin look like it's shrinking a lot. So it's gone from like mid 30% to I think last quarter, something like 20%. So that would be, you know, a worrying trend. But if you actually look at the, Overall gross profit growth. I think it was over 50% last quarter, which is very impressive. So, just trying to get to like a true metric, what moves the needle rather than like all of this noise. So, I think top line growth is you know, not a nearly as useful of a metric for Square these days. So, I would say gross profit is, uh, is pretty important as well as Cash App X Bitcoin.
1: How do you go about valuing a company like Square?
2: The most impressive. Valuation methodology on Square that I've seen comes from Ark Invest um, and Max Max Friedrich, and they have a model that is really interesting on how they value Square. And so I'm going to kind of just copy what they said because I I think it's really insightful. So Square right now has about 30 million monthly active users, and if that continues to grow at at a pace that it's it's growing at, maybe in five years they'll they'll reach 75 million monthly active users. And then the team at ARC did is basically figure out, out of you know, all these big banks like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, what is kind of an average revenue per user of a bank customer? And they came out to this number that was roughly $900. So if you kind of, out of the original 75 million that we're talking about, what percent of those can be monetized at a full $900? Probably not a ton, because I was talking about the underbanked population of square. They're probably not going to monetize at a full 900, because you know maybe these, these customers are just like using it on the side for Bitcoin. but uh, you know, like a very small percentage will actually monetize at a pretty high rates. So let's just say that like 10 percent of those 75 million monetize at the full 900 dollars. So you can do like rough math. Let's call it, just to make the math very simple, a thousand dollars of average revenue per user and ten percent. So seven point five million MAUs at a thousand dollars, which is seven point five billion dollars. And then going from there, you can kind of think of like what would the margins be on that? And payment processing has like very high margins if especially what Cash App is doing. So maybe you can get to like 30% margins. So from there, you can put a multiple on that. So this is like very back of the napkin. So going from 7.5 billion, 30% margins, something like 2.5 billion in earnings, and you can put a multiple on that. Maybe 25 or something. I'm just kind of like using fairly reasonable numbers. So then from there you can say, like, oh, Squares full valuation is something like $93 billion of enterprise value. And Cash App right now um, makes up more than 50% of that value. How much would how much can you attribute to the seller ecosystem? And you know, you know, in five years it might do like, I could see easily doing $200 billion in, in gross payment volume. So, just like these are a lot of numbers that I'm throwing around, but basically, just trying to understand like the opportunity cost or the alternatives of Cash App is these big banks that are spending a ton on customer acquisition, and Cash App's getting all of these users at a very low cost. And so, what is that worth? And, and kind of trying to back into the valuation. So this is more of like a creative way to look at it. A lot of people just look at, you know, like a revenue to or like a price to revenue or price to earnings. But I think with companies growing this fast, thinking about it in maybe an unconventional way can be helpful to get a true value. So yeah, what I think the the team at Arc has done is, is really interesting.
1: I like how you went about it creatively. And that's exactly how I was hoping you would explain it because I want people to understand that it's not just saying, oh, this company is trading at 10 times earnings, you know, a low PE or a low set price of sales, and that must be a, an undervalued situation. I think there's a lot of different ways. I personally classify myself as a value investor. I know you don't like to put yourself in a box, and I, I agree, but I think Square is technically, for me, I considered it a value play because I thought the asset was undervalued, even though somebody would look at that and say, it's a growth stock. How, how can it be a value play? Well, for me, I think it's undervalued. And that's what value investing is, right? You buy companies that are undervalued. So I want people to understand that are listening to the show that there's a lot of different ways you can value a company. Just because it's high growth doesn't mean it can't be a value pick. And that's how I at least think about Square.
2: Totally. I think that's well said.
1: As we wrap up the show, I'd love to finish by talking about two of the most anticipated IPOs of 2020 that just happened. Those are DoorDash, which is trading under ticker DASH, and Airbnb, which is trading under ticker ABNB. How have you approached these IPOs and, and how do you approach IPOs in general?
2: I'm very curious about them because they're, they're both amazing companies. They have very high mind share. A lot of people know about them. So I... Just try to you know read the the prospectus. Try to go straight to the source material. Look at what growth is doing. What is mar what are margins doing? So I mean, they're these are very interesting models. They're both at the core business model. They're both pretty similar. Kind of marketplaces connecting you know in Airbnb's case guests and hosts, and in DoorDash's uh, basically restaurants, drivers, and eaters. So and then they kind of sit in the middle and and take. Uh, a take rate from the overall, you know, kind of like food or guest sales through the entire ecosystem. So you can kind of think of both of them as like these mini cities that kind of take a tax on the constituents. I think they're both very interesting businesses, both founder led, they're you know very high profile Stories, but I have a kind of a rule for myself that I, I try not to invest in IPO until at least after the first earnings call, just so I can see how things are trending. I think that it's very interesting since both businesses, you know, Airbnb was really affected by COVID, obviously, and DoorDash it really accelerated the business. So it's kind of tough because, like, how how permanent are these things? You know, after COVID hopefully dies down, what do these businesses look like? So I think there's a lot of uncertainty and, and right now I'm just trying to learn about both of them so that when I get like a better picture of, of what the long term is going to look like, then I'm kind of like primed and, and sort of know how, how things are going to work. I think a lot of investors will say, you know, I went out of crazy valuations. I would never look at these companies. I think it's always valuable to look at something. And then you can always make up your mind. If you say, uh, I don't really like the business model. And you know, I think the valuation is is terrible. And you can always say no, but I, I think it's important to look at something, even if you think it's ridiculously valued, because you can always learn something. Um, so that's what I try to do. I look at, I try to look at everything and, and make up my own mind.
1: Ryan, thanks so much for joining me today. I enjoyed our conversation and especially our deep dive into one of my favorite companies. Where can everyone listening go to learn more about you and all the different things you're working on?
2: So, if you just type in "investing city" on Google, um, it'll pop up, and sort of the the tagline is "save time and boost returns." So, I'll have my my personal portfolio on the site, and then all of this research bundled around it. Um, so, the goal is to to really help out really busy folks, you know, beat the market. So, I'll I'll try to get conviction and try to. You know, give insights on the, on the silver platter so you can get comfortable with these, these companies. But you, you can check it out there. And then you can also find me on Twitter, investing underscore city. DMs are open. I love hearing from people. So yeah, there's a couple of places you can find me.
1: I will put a link to both of those resources in the show notes below. If you want to connect with Ryan, just click those links. Ryan, thanks again. Really appreciate you joining me.
2: Yeah, no problem, Robert.
1: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to the investorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.